Welcome to Plodcast, the most interestingly named podcast ever. So, one of the more heartening developments in recent years has been the impatience of the pro-life movement. Now, there are pitfalls that come with such impatience. There are some things we have to watch out for. But it's really been encouraging to see uh, a younger generation coming up saying, in effect, we must end human abortion now. Human abortion is not consistent with any kind of respect for uh, the dignity of, uh, of human life. And you can't say, well, we have respect for the dignity of, of the lives of those who made it through. Well, no, you can't be calloused um, about uh, some people and not have that callousness spread to all. So the abolitionist position is a very encouraging development. And when we think about this, we can see that a, uh, a parallel is developing. If you can have sanctuary cities with regard to federal laws on immigration, if you can have states giving the raspberry to the, fed, to the feds on things like um, the use of marijuana, which is illegal according to the feds, then why is that defiance only something that's allowed to the left? on things like illegal immigration or uh, smoking dope. Why couldn't Idaho or Texas or Oklahoma say that we were, that, that they have uh, announced that they are a sanctuary state when it comes to human abortion? We are going to disregard the decision that the Supreme Court made in Roe. We're going to say, no, we're not going to do it. Now, uh, someone's going to say that that would cause a constitutional crisis. Well, why, why hasn't it caused a constitutional crisis when the left does it? Why is it only going to be a constitutional crisis when uh, conservatives draw the line and say, no, this is simply not tolerable? Now, I said at the beginning that this, impa this impatience is a good thing, um, and I think that it, it's good for us to simply draw the line across the board and say, let's be done with half-hearted measures. So for a long time, it was acceptable for a, quote, pro-life politician to say that he was opposed to abortion except for uh, instances of rape and incest. So, um, well, let's, let's consider that for a moment. When a rape occurs and a pregnancy results as a consequence of that rape, you have three parties involved two of them innocent and one of them guilty. The guilty party is the father. The innocent victims are the mother and the child. The mother who was raped and the child who came into existence as a result of that rape. So you have three people, one guilty, two innocent. What sort of sense does it make for pro-life, you know, ostensibly pro-life politicians to be saying things like, I'm opposed to abortion except in cases of rape and incest. What he should say, let's invite him to expand that and say, I'm opposed to abortion except in a case where there are two innocent parties and one guilty party. And in such instances, I favor executing one of the innocent parties and uh, not doing anything of the kind to the guilty party. What sort of sense does it make to execute one of the victims? What sort of sense does it make to execute one of the innocents as opposed to penalizing the guilty. So um, basically, that kind of mealy-mouthed half-heartedness is 
I believe, something that the young new abolitionists are tired of hearing. It's just a way of putting us off. It's just a way of getting us to vote for them so they can then go back to business as usual, which is not actually getting anything done. I'm grateful that we have a thriving pro-life movement decades after Roe v. Wade. I'm grateful that there are many hundreds of thousands of people who are involved in this struggle, who are involved in this fight. Uh, But we have to, the pro-life movement has to develop an eschatology. We have to, we, we have to recognize that we're in a battle, we're in a war. Okay, I think we've gotten that down. But what do you do in a battle? What do you do in a war? Well, you fight it to win it. You don't just fight for the sake of perpetual fighting. You fight in order to win. In other words, it is a reasonable goal for us to set before us the abolition of abortion in the United States of America in all 50 states. Now, I believe that tactically, the way this is going to happen is through an overturning of Roe. And on the principles of federalism, uh, what would happen is if Roe were overturned, meaning that states could, if they wished, make abortion illegal in their state. I believe over 50% of the states would almost immediately make abortion illegal. Um, Maybe upwards of 30, 35 states would do that. But of course, you would have some of the deep blue states, California and New York and Massachusetts and Illinois and so forth, would remain pro-abortion states. All right, so what do we do now? Well, pro-lifers all over the country would then pour in their poor resources into the abolitionist movement in those states. There is no compromise in wanting to overturn Roe v. Wade so that we can get pro-life enclaves established from which we fight to get the pro-choice enclaves removed. So this new totalism on the part of pro-lifers is an encouraging thing. It's a... Uh, It's a reasonable thing. It's a heartening thing. But I also said at the beginning that there are things that um, it is possible to overreach. It is possible to state your position too strongly. How do I mean? Uh, We have always, the Bible recognizes and our common law tradition recognizes gradations of murder. There should be no mistake that abortion is murder. And if abortion is murder, it should carry, in certain instances, the penalty that is attached to first-degree murder. So when someone has been through med school, when someone knows exactly what it is they are doing, and the human uh, life in the womb is declared by our laws to be uh, a human being created in the image of God and worthy of all dignity and respect, if someone willfully, for money, becomes a hitman and takes that child's life, then I don't have any problem with that murderer being treated as a murderer. But we also have to recognize that willfulness and intention in biblical law and in case law does have an impact on what level of charge you bring. So, for example, if you have some scared teenage girl who is persuaded to take a morning-after pill an abortifacient in order to take the life of her child, and she believes that that child is just a clump of cells or, you know, I didn't know, you know, 
one of the I should insert something here. One of the things we should recognize is the reason one of the reasons one of the central reasons the pro-life movement is still going strong is because of the developments in ultrasound technology. The more people see, the more they see what's going on. The more they know, the more they see, the more culpability attaches to doubling down or a continuation of the pro-abortion ethic. This is why the uh, Planned Parenthood videos that have been released over the course of the last year or so have been so appalling. And that is because you see a high level of awareness and knowledge on the part of the perpetrators, and they are doing it anyway, taking pleasure in it anyway. They are exhibiting their bloodthirst. But there really are people, mothers, who are lied to there really are people who are have the facts of the case misrepresented to them. And um, when they do discover later on, that's not a clump of cells at all. There were fingers and fingernails and a heartbeat, and, and this was a child. Um, I believe that there is guilt associated with that, and a woman who gets an abortion, willfully gets an abortion, knows that she's doing something wrong. She knows she's sinning against how God made her. There are, there are problems with it. I don't want to say that there is no culpability at all. But if the ardent abolitionists insist on uh, first-degree murder charges for absolutely everyone who's involved uh, in this, what they're going to do is they're, they're overturning how the Bible approaches the distinctions between manslaughter and murder, how the Bible does, and they are also throwing away centuries of common law jurisprudence that were exercised in the Christian tradition. So, well done to everyone who is drawing a harder, stricter line than we used to draw. That is, that's entirely a good thing, but uh, let's also be careful not to overshoot. So we come to our book review. What I wanted to do in these initial podcasts is talk about books that I think ought to be on everyone's shelf. They were really influential in my life. And I, I believe that these are the sorts of books that will help equip Christians living in the times that we're living in. So if you want to understand, if you're lost in the woods, one of the things you, you really want is a map. If you are lost in the culture war woods, if you are lost in a world that has seemingly lost its collective mind, if you're lost at the circus, that's, that's a good way of describing where we are. If you're lost at the circus, you want a map. You want, you want one of those uh, places that you can find where there's an X on it that says you are here. So a, a book I recommend, a wonderful book uh, to help orient you, is Idols for Destruction by Herbert Schlossberg. Idols for Destruction by... Herbert Schlossberg. This is a he, he does a demolition job on a number of the idols that uh, we have established in North America. And because it's North America, they are not the kind of idols that are set up in in big squares and where people come and leave baskets of fruit in front of the statues. Not that kind of idol. An idol is any finite thing that people put in the place of God. And this, this finite thing can be a finite mental construction, not just something we fashioned with our hands. Uh, so if you carve an idol out of wood or stone, 
That's a physical idol, but you can also carve a worldview idol, a mental idol. You can you can come up with a system that is not the um, system of Scripture, not the system found in Scripture, and so consequently it's idolatrous to, to follow that. Schlossberg talks about the idol of history. He talks about the idol of humanity. He talks about the idol of mammon. He talks about the idol of nature, the idol of power, and the idol of religion. Now you can see in our time, the prob- out of all these idols, the most visible, the most obvious, would be probably mammon and nature. So uh, environmental extremists have gone a long way to deify nature, and we, we see this in the global warming or climate change hysteria. Uh, that is a, uh, a result of devotion to the idol of nature. There is an idolatrous faith that lies behind that. In the consumption ethic, in the um, chase after money, in the debt ethic that many Americans live by, you can see the work of the idol of mammon. And if you read, if you read through Schlossberg's book, and and see his treatment of history and his treatment of humanity and his treatment of mammon and nature and power. Now, that's another one, uh, another one that can be obvious depending on where you live in the country, depending on what they tell you, tell you you can and cannot do. And if you look at the idol of religion, if you work through this, if you read through this book, you will see an, a sweeping indictment of the uh, contemporary American way of life. And, and, of course, we live in a time when these idols have to come down, and we need some Gideons to get some ropes and heavy equipment to pull them over. So then, we have a fun little segment in our podcast called A Lexicon of Sin. And I want to talk today here about culpable ignorance, blameworthy ignorance. Although ignorance is sometimes exculpatory, the scriptures frequently describe spiritual ignorance or blindness as both causing sin and exacerbating the fault of it. So the word uh, used in scripture is agnoeo. Agnoeo. This is obviously related to the word, um, the the noun coined by Thomas uh, Huxley, agnostic. Um, Gnosis is the word for knowledge and, and the ah in front of it is a term of negation. Theos is the word for God. Atheist is someone who denies there is a God or denies God. So an agnostic is someone who professes to have no knowledge on that topic. So is there a God? And you say, I'm an agnostic. You're saying, in effect, I don't know. I don't know if there's a God or not. So agnoeo is verb form. And this is an ignorance or a blindness that both causes sin and it Uh, exacerbates the guilt or the fault of sin. Christians can struggle with blameworthy ignorance, ignorance that ought not to characterize them. Paul warns the Romans that he does not want them to be ignorant of the mystery of Christ, which would result in them being wise in their their conceits. That's Romans 11.25. There are always those within the church who resist sound admonitions and warnings. If any be ignorant, let him be. That's 1 Corinthians 14, 38. If you're ignorant, let him be ignorant. Being ignorant of Satan's devices would be naive at best. 
That's 2 Corinthians 2.11. You don't want to be ignorant of Satan's devices. You don't want to be ignorant of where the traps are set. And if believers are ignorant of what happens at death, the result would be that they would be without hope. 1 Thessalonians 4.13. So we don't want to be ignorant of what happens at death. Continuing to live in sin is the result of not knowing that those who are baptized into Christ are baptized into his death. Romans 6.3. So, if you don't know that baptism into Christ is baptism into his death, then that is something that causes continuance in sin. When Christ foretold his passion, his disciples were ignorant of what he was saying. Mark 9.32, Luke 9.44 and 45. And they clearly should not have been ignorant of what he was talking about. In all of this sort of thing, ignorance is an impediment to our sanctification. This is the kind of ignorance that gets in the way of believers growing in grace. On a more serious level, ignorance led to the crucifixion of Christ. That's in Acts 13.27. This is a judicial blindness, one that cannot be corrected even by the most direct warnings. If someone has been, has been judicially blinded, you can walk up and tell them, you have been judicially blinded by God. Don't do this thing. This is, a, this is a terrible thing you're about to do. And because of the judicial stupor, the judicial blindness, you can't address it. The basic problem is that carnal men, natural men, are ignorant of God's righteousness. Romans 10.3. And when you're ignorant of God's righteousness, you always want to figure out some way of establishing your own righteousness. If damnation has a single root, and it does, it is this. The most important repentance for man to learn is repentance of his virtues, repentance of his own righteousness. Um, even non-believers know that uh, flagrant sins are bad. You know, it's, it's a sin to murder your grandmother for her money. Um, and you, you find that even non-believers have a, still have a functioning conscience, and if they commit a sin like that, they know that something has to be done about it. But the thing that's really difficult to get people to repent of is their righteousness, their, their sense of worth, their sense of they're saving the planet. So it's one thing to, if you wanted to get someone to repent of their drunkenness or repent of their immorality, you're going to have a far better time of it than if you try to get someone to repent, say, of their diligent efforts at recycling. Men don't like repenting of their virtues. So those who don't know this principle are in danger. Not knowing the goodness of God leads to repentance. This leads them to despise the riches of God's goodness, forbearance, and patience. That's Romans 2.4. And when they are far gone in this sinful sort of autonomy, the darkness closes in for good, and they speak evil of the things that they don't understand at all. 2 Peter 2.12. So they, in their ignorance, they, they speak evil of these things they are ignorant of. Now, someone who claims to not know certain basic things that he ought to know might try to make things sound more sophisticated by using the word agnostic, which comes from the Greek, right? But it might be more to the point if you asked him to use the Latin term that means the same thing, which is ignoramus. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. 
To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.